Greetings and welcome to the NASPO Pulse. This is the podcast where we are monitoring issues in states procurement. We've got our finger on the pulse. I'm your host, Amanda Valdivieso. And I'm Kevin Miner. And today we're talking research. That's right. We're talking with Dr. Rob Hanfield of North Carolina State University. We're also going to talk with friend of the pod, Dr. Shawei Wu of Oregon State University, who, I'm sure you know this, Amanda, I, I interviewed do. last year, season one, about the state of supply chain during the pandemic. And thankfully, we're talking about state's response to the pandemic as opposed to not really knowing what's going on. Yeah, it's really nice to see this all come full circle for the podcast. Dr. Hanfield and Dr. Wu, along with several other of our academic partners and the NASPA research team, have just published a new research report assessing PPE shortages that occurred throughout the United States in 2020. This report examines the structural influence of state procurement offices on the ability to respond in an agile and effective manner. Ooh, shiny new research report. Exactly. Yeah, and and our guests today, they do a great job synthesizing that information as well as explaining their various methodologies that they used. Email us with your questions and comments at podcast at naspo.org. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google, and make sure to check out Naspo blog at pulse.naspo.org and catch up on some procurement articles written by your very own NASPO staff. Let's take the pulse. Dr. Wu, thank you so much for joining us again. Dr. Wu and I have actually already had, we had an interview last year. And so I'm sure a lot has changed between the time we talked last year and what we talked about now. Mostly we were talking about Supply Chain Council. If you haven't, go listen to that episode because it's very interesting. But Dr. Wu, can you just uh, refresh our memory on some of your background? Sure. I'm at uh, Oregon State University and I'm a professor of supply chain management and uh, been working with uh, collaborating with uh, NASPO for four years at least now, and uh, fortunate to be involved in this research with Dr. Hanfield on PPE sourcing by the states. And Dr. Hanfield, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you, sir? I'm good today. How about yourself? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. We really appreciate you joining us today to, to discuss this COVID-19 research paper with us. Before we get started, can you tell us just a little bit about your collegiate background? Sure. I've, I've been a professor of uh, purchasing and supply chain management for about 30 years, um, last 20 years at North Carolina State University. And uh, there we founded the Supply Chain Resource Cooperative, where we work with industry and the public sector on uh, different kinds of purchasing projects. And uh, I've also done some work um, with uh, some of the federal acquisition agencies like GSA and VA and others as well. So I bet you guys have been uh, extra busy this past year. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Supply chain has been sort of uh, on the tip of everyone's tongue, as as sure. has been uh, you know acquisition at, at a federal and state level. It's been a, a real challenge for sure. You also are an adjunct professor, right, of supply chain management at Manchester Business School, correct? That's correct. Yep. I, uh, I occasionally I go visit my my friends over in the UK and, and we work on on research wow. over there as well. Really, and I bet so you've kind of seen the whole spectrum in the past year, everything from the academic side to the actual application. 
Well, absolutely. And, and one of the things that was sort of unique about my, uh, my activity this year is early in March, I was brought in to the Joint Acquisition Task Force to work on uh, with, with the U.S. Air Force on trying to identify uh, the PPE and a lot of the shortages of PPE. Right. And so I, I was engaged with FEMA and, and uh, uh, the Strategic National Stockpile. And in addition to that, you know, this, this big study that we did with NASPO was, uh, gave me a really, really good picture of everything that was going on uh, around, around the COVID response. Well, and that's the reason for our discussion today. We want to get a better understanding of the research paper that was produced by NASPO, Assessing State PPE Procurement During COVID-19. And I believe that that's out now, actually. I know that the analysis is based on a little over 100 hours of interviews with state CPOs, state procurement managers, members of government organizations, and private sector organizations that were all involved in the state PPE procurement process. Can you tell us just a little bit about why that's so important? Just give us a, a general summary of that paper and how it came to be. A- absolutely. So, so uh, you know, as I said, back in April, we had an opportunity uh, based on a conversation with Lyndall Hatton to uh, launch a study where we would interview every uh, CPO in the country and understand you know, what happened uh, when, during COVID. And we were interested in understanding, first of all, you know, how they were able to uh, get access to PPE to be able to operate, uh, but also, you know, to understand kind of the the differences in the ways that each of the the state CPOs operated, uh, how they interacted uh, with, with other actors in the disaster relief operations, uh, the communications that they had, and their ability to respond, uh, as well as the, the challenges that existed uh, along the way. And what we uh, came out with was a really sort of holistic view of uh, how, how different actors uh, at the state level should react in to different kinds of emergencies that occur. And uh, it also gave us some, some really great lessons learned for the future of how state CBOs uh, should be thinking about uh, interacting with, with other actors at the state level, but also how they organize themselves and how they should prepare themselves for future problems in the, uh, that might occur as well. Wow. And so you made an effort to to interview all 50 states. That's that's quite an undertaking. That's a big achievement, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a job. It was, huh. uh, we, we had at least an hour with, with, with uh, each CPO and then we also spoke with uh, a number of other people as well, like from in some places we talked with uh, some of their strategic partners, like in Michigan, there was, they, they worked with GM and we, we talked with someone at GM. They worked with different emergency response agencies. Um, we, we, we spoke with suppliers in some cases. So we got a really, a really great, unique uh, set, of, set of interviews that you know, I, th- I think under any other circumstances, we never would have been able to do that. Given both of your backgrounds in supply chain, I'm sure that sometimes it's hard to surprise you. What, what is something that surprised both of you through this while you were going through this study? Well, I, I'll speak first. I, I think for me, the you know, one of the biggest surprises was 
the you know the the uh, ability of the state CPOs to react to completely uh, unknown situations. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for for many many of uh, the state CPOs we spoke with, many of them you know admitted we've actually never purchased anything prior to COVID. You know, we we established contracts, but we negotiated the rates, but we didn't actually have to have to buy anything. When when all of a sudden they're not just buying stuff, they're managing supply chains, they're operating warehouses, they're dealing with uh, suppliers, uh, you know, in China on on PPE. They're working with, you know, international bills of lading. You know, they're, 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 they're thrown into this new environment where they really have to learn how to deal with, uh, you know, extreme complexity and unknown situations before. So it was, um, it, it, for many of them, it was, it was, uh, uh, you know, trial by fire. You know, they had never. They really had to adapt and overcome very quickly. (laughs) So obviously um, folks can read the paper on the NASPA website, um, but what I really want to talk about, because you mentioned, Rob, the lessons learned. So one of the findings during the study was that state procurement offices should move to more of a supply chain management model. Can you gentlemen talk a little bit about what that supply chain management model looks like, what it entails for state procurement offices? Yeah, I'll go first, then I'll, okay. I'll, ask, I'll ask maybe Wudu to, uh, to comment. So, so one of the big changes, I think, was that... Um, they were having to buy, you know, these masks from from people, like I said, in in uh, in, in China, where a lot of them were produced. And not surprisingly, um, you know, a lot of people didn't know this, but the, uh, the the central place where all of N95 masks are produced is Wuhan, China, which was actually, you know, the the uh, ground zero for for the uh, yeah. the COVID virus. Yeah. Um, so, so a lot of the, 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 the abilities to get these masks was, was shut off. Um, but they also discovered that they, they had to find ways to store this stuff um, because virtually every agency in the government required PPE to continue operating. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a matter of, of you know, making a one-time purchase. You couldn't get this stuff. Yeah. And, and the traditional distributors that they were using, you know, the McKessons, the Cardinals, yeah, didn't have any inventory of it. So all of a sudden, they were having to go directly to uh, these, in some cases, dubious uh, manufacturers or these brokers and negotiate deals with them to buy masks that they had never had to do before. And there were some scam artists out there. There was there was a lot of scams going on uh, around these masks. And on top of that, people were requiring that they pay 50% or in some cases, 100% up front. Well, they, wow. for a state procurement officer, that's like a big no-no. You, you never pay that. Yeah, you don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> so they had to get special dispensation from their, uh, you know, from their governor in some cases uh, to be able to do this. And literally, if you didn't move quickly, if you didn't, you know, make that deal and, and send them the money, by the time you returned, those masks were gone. Somebody else had bought them. Yeah. Ooh, I don't know if you want to add to that. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, at what Rob is saying, one thing we, we observe is the, the entrepreneurship of the buyers and the state producing agent. And, uh, so it's like, 
they worked right away with uh, with the private sector. And uh, and one interesting thing is the the state procurement knows what is in shortage, way ahead of of the, anybody else in the world because right. they buy so much. It's a consolidation yeah. point. And uh, so early on, I think once they were saying, we know there will be a shortage of electronics, and that was not even in, in the mind of many anywhere. And they work with the private sector right away and, and, and calling on the agencies say, well, there could be a shortage in five months and you need to act on it before the budget season uh, cycle is over. So, so that collaboration between private and the state, I think, informs us that, that there, there, there's a really quick coalition of the supply chain that the, uh, the, 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 the individual buyers at, within all the states are able to connect with and, uh, and build off the public supply chain and link it with the supply, uh, private ones. So that's quite amazing how fast it happened. Yeah. Well, yeah, and just that, um, I mean, I, I assume that it's something that you guys don't see a lot either is, is that partnership between these public and private agencies. That's correct. Yeah. We're, you know, generally, um, you know, there isn't a lot of, res- of interaction between the state and, and private sector. Right. Um, but in, in many cases, we saw that they were actually talking to companies in the private sector and, and relying on them. Um, a great example, like I said, was, was Michigan. Um, you know, they, they, they reached out to the automotive companies and the automotive companies had people on the ground uh, in uh, in China that that could actually contact suppliers there and get access to PPE. In another case, um, you know, one of the states had access to the uh, the Chinese embassy in New York City and were able to, you know, contact them and get access to, um, you know, to, to people over there as well. So, so being able to to you know build that network and use that network of people. Uh, to, to get access to, to this was, was important. The other point I want to make is, you know, during this time period, um, uh, as we all know, you know, the, the, the Trump administration essentially made a, a um, you know, mandate that the states were sort of uh, on their own when it came to finding mm-hmm. PPE. Yeah. So every state uh, was, was sort of, uh, you know, trying to get PPE. And in some cases, competing with other states for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's true. One of the things that NASPO did is NASPO was able to, uh, you know, have these weekly calls. And that really helped people to come together and share information between uh, one another. And, and a lot of people said that that was a really important role to be able to have those discussions with other CPOs. And in some cases, you know, get access to information on where they were getting their stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I know a guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know a guy. Let me call him. Here's his number. Yep. Yeah. I know. And they're still discussing that stuff to this oh, day. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So that NASPO played a great role in that regard. Well, hey, we'll take, we will take uh, shout outs shamelessly whenever Anytime we can get them. Yeah. <laughs> yes, a- that's right. Absolutely. So I want to go back to a point. I think, Rob, you mentioned earlier um, about the ideas that there was issues of warehousing logistics with state procurement offices, something that they haven't really gone into. But now all of a sudden they have to. They had gotten away from owning warehouses, but with COVID hitting, they had to face these issues of stockpiling supplies. So can you talk to us, both of you, can you talk to us a little bit about the different ways the states responded to this part of the disaster? 
Well, what, what happened is during COVID-19, states were suddenly confronted with the need to manage, you know, as I said, supply chains. And, um, and, and as there were shortages of PPE, uh, suddenly, um, you know, these stockpiles were, were disappearing. And in many, most states, you know, some of them did have warehouses in the past, uh, but had eliminated them over the years. Uh, but they suddenly, you know, felt that they needed to initiate sourcing with, with these overseas suppliers. And, um, and then they had to have a place to store them. Well, many of them had never established a warehouse and distribution capability to, to store emergency supplies. So overnight, they, they had to, uh, you know, coordinate logistic shipments, deal with tariffs, and then, and then sign warehouse leases to enable storage of inbound materials. And um, what was funny was, you know, people were saying, well, at first we started, you know, using the conference room, right? They were using their conference room to store mm, yeah. masks and stuff. And pretty soon they figured out that that wasn't really <laughs> didn't working. Work. Well. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then they said, well, how are we going to, how are we going to find these, you know, what are we going to do? So they, many of them were able to, to work with, with, uh, you know, different agencies. I know in California, they contracted with UPS. Uh, to to uh, you know get a, a third party uh, warehouse space. In other cases, they they had you know maybe some old warehouse space available that they had used previously, mm-hmm. and they were able to to renew those leases. Um, and and in many cases, they had purchasing people uh, assigned to work in the warehouse along with the emergency response uh, or, uh, you know teams in the state. And and we're we're actively you know located in these warehouses managing them. We we spoke with a couple of folks that were you know doing Zoom calls from a warehouse. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, it it was you know and they just they just responded. They did what whatever we need to do. Uh, I've yeah. never leased a warehouse before, but you know there's always a first time, and and so they they learned and adapted quickly to uh, to the requirements. One another state was uh, getting a lease from a private sector and mm-hmm. <laughs> not a apparel company on the East Coast. So uh, they were able to to use a, a private sector warehouse. And the private sector, in many cases, also helped to set up the, the, the system, the logistics system within oh, the nice. okay. and with the help with the National Guard as an as a able body to move things. Yeah. That's a good um, you know, combination of different resources coming together. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, there's, there's a quote in this study that I like to read and I want to see if it resonates with you guys. It says, so we found a vendor that could get us a lot of masks all at one time and they had gotten a shipment in from somewhere. And then the actual boat was coming around the port. I had somebody drive down and hand them a check for 25% before the ship arrives at the port. The only way I can explain it is that it's like Tony Soprano walked up the dock, handed them the cash, and took it. That happened to me. They took it. How does that, how does that, I mean, that's like one of the first quotes right in the, right on the top page, like page two of the study. How does that resonate with you guys? Yeah, I mean that was that was a uh, that was a great quote, and and uh, you know the individual and you know was was really incredulous when they were describing this to us. Yeah, uh, it it really was unheard of. Like I said, that that any state procurement officer or any representative of the state would would pay cash, literally cash up front yeah. to somebody you did not know, 
an unqualified vendor. And, uh, and that was, that was just the state of, it was the demand for PPE was so uh, intense and, and people were just getting desperate and doing whatever yeah. they had to do. And like I said, if you didn't pay the cash, if you said, well, we don't do that uh, at our state, well, you didn't get, you were out of luck because somebody else would be willing to do it. So what had to happen is uh, many of them had to have special dispensations. So they had to have uh, very close relationships with the chief financial officer at the state and, and get a, a special um, you know, request and, and approval. And in some cases, people were doing this by texting over their cell phones with one another um, to, to, to get this done. Uh, and, and timing was really was of the essence. Um, one of the things that, that also happened, I think, you know, that we heard about was there were some scams out there, as I mentioned. And uh, in, in some cases, uh, and this part of the problem was, was the, you know, the uh, federal government also came out with a list of approved uh, PPE suppliers and then later came back and changed that list. So some states went ahead, contracted with these providers then discovered they were no longer approved and had to wow. claw back funds that they had already provided to them. So it was, it was a real mess uh, to say the least. Yeah. That sounds like an understatement. Yes, <laughs> it does. And I, I imagine all these state procurement officers also are, most of them are doing this from home because they've all been, you know, relegated to their homes due to the pandemic. Yeah. So on top of maintaining their, I mean, other stuff still had to run, right? So on top of yes, maintaining yeah. contracts, you normally you have to maintain. Exactly. Well, then, and you bring up another point, which is you know working from home. Um, many of these state agencies had people that had always come into work, you know, and and some of them were told literally overnight, "Well, guess what? We're all working from home." And, and people were packing up their computers. Some of them didn't have laptops. They were at, at desktops and were right. throwing incredible. them in the trunk of their car and, and driving home saying, how do I do this? And uh, so, so, so states had to also really rapidly adapt. And, and a number of states had just implemented e-procurement systems, which allowed them to be able to, to do things uh, virtually. Uh, but you know, in other cases, they were, they were having to adapt to these kinds of situations. Um, in some cases, they were able to deploy laptops to their staff quickly and, and be able to get them uh, functioning from home. Some of them didn't have, you know, good internet connections from home. So there was there was a, a real disruption in terms of the workflow that also occurred. With many, I'm sure many, many states are, taught, are telling us the same, that uh, in the first three months, no one took a vacation or working at home. And what is a what is a day days of work? And this PPE is in Asia, so everybody work until until the contract is signed. Until the other house, yeah. now yep. we, we have a delivery or we have a price. And I remember one state, all many on the southeast were dealing with the hurricanes, and you had to find an evacuation hotel for people. And so they work until 2 a.m. 2 and then, well, that's, that's a hotel. And on the West Coast, yeah. those 2 a.m. Yeah. Dr. Wu, you bring up a, um, a really good point in that the fact that some of the states deal with natural disasters much more frequently uh, than others. What can states in the hurricane belt teach the rest of us about emergency re response and procurement? 
I was getting up late to prepare for this and uh, last night, but really I was reading the interview on one of the states and there's so many small mm-hmm. things that's happening during a hurricane and they've been through so many. And the one thing that jump up in mind is that they do this lesson learned. And so there's so many little lessons we would not think about. And uh, so I think the, the one of the learning is, well, what do we learn from this and how we practice, how we get better next time? And every mm-hmm. disaster is different. So there's a lot of little things. For example, we bought the generator, but we have the fuel supplier as a separate supplier, and the fuel does not match the generator. So this, this thing we will not think about. And we have the driver who, who, who delivered the ice, and then whether the driver should stay or not, and there's money, the cost associated with it. So all these little things. And I think the more disaster you have of, ironically, the seems the, 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 the states are, are dealing with it better. They, they just have more experience, even so different type of disaster. So the lesson learned here is practice and, and, and talk with among each other, among the states, and figure out what are the best practice in, 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 in visioning the scenario and what are the best purchasing practice with the, with the sudden needs of something. Yeah, I can add to that. I think, you know, one of the things from the, you know, the, the, the states in the hurricane belt is they were well practiced in emergency response. I mean, they had very mature uh, response systems. Uh, and granted, a hurricane is, you know, uh, a one-time event. You know, COVID kind of just went on and on and on. Yeah. 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 I was saying, I think Dr. Wu brought up a great point that what all these state procurement offices can learn is just to talk to each other and learn these best practices from each other. I think that is so important to moving forward, regardless of whether or not, you know, once we're out of the pandemic and everything is back to normal, just keep that communication going. Right. And also in the Rob's example there, I think how the state procurement work with the EOC and the work with different agencies, the finance and, and yes. the structure, it's not just necessarily a, a described structure of centralization. It's how the collaboration happens. And that, that's yes. really important. And they figure out I agree. they suffer through it and they know how to get things done in real time. Sure. Yeah, what, one, one of the differentiating features of these states, you know, that are because we developed sort of a maturity model that, that helped uh, identify, you know, sort of best practices of states that uh, were, were able to handle the, the, the response, um, uh, you know, more, more effectively is um, is you really need to have a playbook. So you need to understand when there's emergency who does what? What is the role of procurement? What's the, the role of emergency response? And, and the point that we're seeing is you really need to have procurement in a central role in this because no one knows more about where to get stuff, how to find it, how to build a contract, how to respond. And so procurement needs to, to work closely with other agencies, especially oh, yeah. emergency response. Right. And that playbook, every state should have their playbook developed of what happens in an emergency, not just something like COVID, but any kind of emergency that, that uh, you know, to, to be able to deal with that. Yeah. I know NASPO has done a number of studies and papers on the need of the procurement office, the central procurement office, having more of a forward thinking role in government. And I think this pandemic just illustrated that so perfectly, the need for the procurement offices to be a part of well, it. Well, that and, um, Dr. Hanfield, to your point, uh, just being able to uh, acquire or procure goods responsibly, 
and up mm-hmm. to state codes and to the law, right? I mean, yep. you know, I'm, I'm sure that there's a lot of uh, administrators and leadership that need things, but like you said, have no idea where to get them, but also no idea how to acquire them lawfully while still being a steward of taxpayer money, right? That's that's yes. right, and, and um, you know, there are state regulations that have to be that have to be followed. And, um, you know, ideally you do want to get, you do want to deal with approved suppliers, uh, you know, that are, that are approved by the state. Uh, you want to get fair competition in some cases, you know, you need to get, you know, the right number of bids and so forth. Um, but during an emergency response, um, you know, you have to kind of weigh that, that off against, you know, what can we do to really, you know, help people that are in need at the moment. And, and so having that that uh, that right balance of, a, of a, an approach that that follows the state guidelines, you know, yet yet is able to respond quickly becomes important. Yeah. And what a decision to make. What a decision to yeah. have to make. Yeah. I mean, people were dying and, and, and you know, you, you know that if you don't get material in that people need, uh, there's there's going to be. Uh, you know, ventilators and, you know, all these kinds of things were, became really critical in those early, early days. Dr. Hanfield, you, you mentioned the uh, maturity model, and I, and I know that that is something that you guys went through throughout this paper. Can you, can you synthesize that a little bit for us? Sure. We, we came up with just a, a general maturity model that identifies, you know, a few dimensions of uh, uh, sort of the, the level of, of uh, emergency response maturity. And it has to do the, the dimensions in this case refer to, uh, you know, the, the governance of the emergency team. You know, as I said, who, who's in charge, how, how well the states uh, had managed their strategic stockpile, uh, how well they had planned ahead for, for you know, different risks, how they dealt with, with human resources and communicate with, with their team as well as the, the level of uh, IT uh, infrastructure planning during this event. So, so uh, I, I think what we're, we're starting to see is, you know, organizations that have a more mature approach to this generally have a chief procurement officer that is more centralized, uh, you know, that reports to the secretary who reports to the governor, and, and we start to see procurement is more responsible at a higher level for, uh, for the response uh, and, and isn't sort of, you know, a standalone function that is just sort of a contracting function. So I think we see a, a procurement playing a, a bigger role in, in emergency response in states that are a little more mature in their, in their approach. I agree. I mean, there's what you, you said. Well, you said pretty much everything there. So in a way, there's a configuration, and we now looking back at all the data, and we are kind of building off a a profile of which state is where in that model. And uh, so, if I'm if I'm a user of the model as a state agency or a governor's office, it's like, well, how well is our state handling? Able to handle the, the the disasters and how well is our uh, is our government? How efficient? How resilient is the government? Yeah, so so it's quite interesting to see from a from a, from a from a state management standpoint that uh, how well are we compared with other states? So yeah, so that's that's part of the work we are doing at this point. So now that we're seeing a light at the end of the tunnel, 
um, to all this. It's been over a year. I mean, think marked, yeah, marked over a year since this pandemic has started. Do you both see any lasting effects from this disaster in state procurement, good or bad? Do you have see any lasting effects that will occur? I, I do. I think I think we're starting to see that people are really coming back and saying, "How you know? What are the lessons learned? What would what should we have done differently, or what could we have done differently?" And uh, you know, for instance, some of them are saying, "You know, now this gives us additional ammunition to." you know, invest in a, yeah, a procurement system, perhaps, or to upgrade a procurement system, or, you know, to be able to uh, look at how we work from home. Uh, I think work from home was a big aha moment during this whole event, and, and people are looking at, at that maybe something that happens a lot more going forward. I think it's going to forever change the, you know, the way we work. Uh, I also think that it will, you know, there will be discussions uh, around governance and, and and playbooks, and we hope that the report will also generate those kinds of discussions uh, within state agencies to uh, to make some changes. Yeah, two two more things on that. Uh, adding to that is is that you know this is uh, pandemic is happening at the same time other things are happening and unfolding, right? So like the shortages now, and with a, with a boat stuck in pa- Panama or as a now, not Panama this time, and uh, and the shortage is, is, is still happening. And uh, and the, I'm sure some of the things in the container are something the states are buying, and also the data security issue. Right, it's it's happening in parallel. So all these things are a part of the the, the priorities of the states. And so as, as we come out of a pandemic, and the states really are thinking. The, the, the purchasing is part of supply chain and how we deal with this internationally and how we look for, look beyond the, the vendor or the distributors. So going back to the first question you asked, that's another th- way we see how state procurement becomes supply chain management to deal with all the, all the things the private sector are dealing with and in the global supply chain environment. So, so before we go, thank you guys so much for, for talking with us today. Before we go, one thing that we like to ask all of our guests is just if they have any advice for our listeners. And this can be professional advice or, or so on, just something that you've learned in the past year, or just something that you like to tell people. Dr. Hanfield? You know, I, I think my advice would be that, um, you know, th- this, this was an unprecedented event. Um, but don't, don't rest back on your laurels and say, well, you know, now we're going to be able to, uh, uh, you know, go back to normal. Um, I don't think that's likely going to be the case. Uh, I think it's 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 more likely that there's going to be some profound changes in the, like I said, in the way we work, in in the role of state procurement, uh, in in the resilience of of, uh, of of how states operate and in federal and state government. And I think we we can learn from this. And I would encourage everyone to. You know, kind of do a postmortem and and bring the team together and say, what do we learn from this, and what what do we think we should change, or what should we do differently going forward? There will be other uh, emergencies, hopefully not as dramatic as this one, but uh, we need to be prepared for other other you know unexpected events. Doctor Wu, for me, yeah. So one thing is that you know the disaster always brings. The best of us, and when we're spending so many hours interviewing this, the, the buyers, and we feel that, and uh, <laughs> you know, this is the, the work. Just the, some people who are introvert and came out as the biggest helper, 
for the states. And uh, so there, I think there's a social capital, excuse me. <clears throat> there's social capital built by the, by the buyers and the state purchasing agency and among, uh, among other peers in the states. So the, so the state procurement should leverage the social capital and, and further prof professionalize the procurement and, uh, and make this really important. As we know, this is a, a bit, there'd be more disastrous. This would be more important than supply management. So this is an opportunity for individuals as, as professional growth and also as an opportunity to, to bring up, the, to, to make the supply chain as a function, the procurement as a function at the state. Yeah, Dr. Wu, I, in our last interview, one thing that you said, and I'll, I'll never forget, I really liked it. You said that this entire thing's kind of been like jazz music, just very <laughs> improvisational, and um, you never true. really know what's coming next. So, are we at least right. are we at least coming to the end of, of this jazz song? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I, hope so. <laughs> I think we all did. <laughs> well. Gentlemen, thank you guys so much for joining us thank today. You. We really appreciate your time and we really appreciate your participation and work on this research paper. I think it's going to help Thank a lot. you guys so much. Yep. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. So, Amanda, what did you think of that interview? I thought it was very insightful. You know, we've heard a lot about this before over the past year, and I still think it's extremely relevant and unfortunately that it's still a thing today. But overall, yeah. I'm glad that we are getting this information out there. Yeah. Yeah, it is unfortunate. Um, I mean, we've, we have heard all of this before, but I think it's important to reiterate mm -hmm. and hear more of the academic analysis side paired with firsthand accounts. Yes, and well, also hearing about the model they use, the lessons learned, I think will be very important uh, for a lot of people who are reading the report. Agreed. And we will put the link in the description where you can download the report. Assessing State PPE Procurement During COVID-19, a research report. And Amanda, tell our listeners where they can find it. Yes, Kevin, of course. So you can access the research report by going to naspo.org and heading over to the Research and Innovation tab. And when you click on that, you can click on all the publications. And this will be the first one that pops up for you. Yep, and shout out to the NASPO Research and Innovation Team for all the time and energy that they put into writing this report as well. That's right. They are our uh, our friends over there at the Research Innovation Absolutely. Team. Absolutely. For both Hello. of us. Yes. Hello, R&I. Hey, guys. So, yes, thank you so much for listening today. Until next time. Bye.